0: That's a groovy button. What does it say? And welcome back to the Texas Prairie Chicken Home Companion. We're back with episode 16. Wow. They said it couldn't be done and
1: We did it anyway. That's right. Or as if if this were Marvel, they say they told us not to do it, so we didn't do it.
0: Based on popular demands, the podcast Your Letters Demanded
1: <laughs> is still here whether you like it or not.
0: Well, this is Al. I wonder what she's doing tonight. Bigly, joined by... Alan. Oh, let me tell you, it hurts so bad, Williams. And if that doesn't give you a clue to the theme of this episode, nothing will. This is our Salute to Boyce and Heart episode, featuring not just songs Boyce and Heart did for the Monkees, but an exclusive interview with...
1: The Legendary, one of the most amazing storytellers I've ever met.
0: Are you talking about me again?
1: <laughs> no, not this time, pal. uh the one and only Bobby Hart.
0: That's right. We corralled Bobby into a wonderful interview where he talks about his early days of songwriting, of course, writing for the Monkees, book projects he's done, what he's doing today, you name it.
1: It's just the the stories that he tells about the, beginning, the, the beginnings all the way through the project, even to last year with Good Times. You guys are going to be enthralled.
0: Can we say enthralled on the podcast? Yes, we can. Speaking of that, we uh, are... Unlike last episode, we are lawyer free. We are uh, uh, there's no um con- uh, yeah. there's no cons- there's some lingering side it, effects it, from no the what, consultant.
1: What what oh uh, the the fact that, the, the, yeah I have those moments every now and then. But yes, well uh,
0: at least you're not doing the real Don Steele anymore. And there's that drool we have to contend with. But you know, three twenty one k
1: h j jet set time with the real. No, that's not it. <clears throat> I'll have to see if I can dig deep into the recesses of my mind and my voice and pull that out again, but we'll see.
0: Well, the shock therapy probably drummed it out. But yes, we have no sensors. We have no consultant. It's just the two of us.
1: Yes, we have no sense, but no longer no sensors.
0: Yes, we have no... Bananas. There we go. See the monkeys Apples,
1: peaches, bananas, and pears.
0: See See how we tie things together, folks? And the charge to you at home?
1: Absolutely nothing.
0: It comes free of charge. All this extra humor, all the extra uh, little side bits and the... uh, Drawing things together, drawing conclusions. You charge nothing Jumping to that. conclusions. That too. No charge for that. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: Where else can you get a freebie like that? I mean, serious. Tell you what we're going to do. Wait a minute. I got to do it right. Hit. Tell you what we're going to do.
0: I, uh, okay. That's, that's something you can do over there. So, we also have, of course, a call in from our friend Jody Ritson.
1: Boy, has she got a lot to talk about.
0: <laughs> and boy, does she have quite a tan now.
1: Yeah, it's, it's not like she's been on a Flower Power Cruise and you know all sorts of fun, you know, been to karaoke. Well, wait, why am I stealing her thunder? I shouldn't do that.
0: The love boat. Da, 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 da. my heart.
1: That was my karaoke choice, but I wasn't oh, there.
0: okay. You do your thing, I'll do mine.
1: Please do. Love boat. And so, Al, how in the hell are you? It's been a while since I've seen you.
0: I'm doing great. I uh, just got back from my Trepanian lesson where uh, they uh, do certain things to your brain.
1: <laughs> oh, is that what the scar is on the top of your head where your, where your forehead used to be? I see. Okay. And
0: that's the reason for the radical haircut?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Aha. Yeah.
0: How about you? What have you been doing?
1: Uh, I have been working on the music bingo gig, for those of you who care. Um... Yeah, it's great not to have to go into the corporate world. The, the money is getting better. I'm having fun. We get to hang out more and do more podcasts. And You so,
0: told him you wanted to um, play your own instruments, basically.
1: That's right. I, I, t- I told the Kirshner of the world that I wanted, the corporate world, that I wanted to play my own instruments. He laughed and said, see the door? Don't let it hit you on the way
0: out. Don't you know what I've done for you and can continue to do for you if you would just stick with me, boys?
1: Are you sure that was Kirshner or not? Hashtag not my prez.
0: It's going to be a great record, the best record. We're going to succeed hugely with these monkeys records.
1: Don't you mean we're going to succeed bigly? I avoid that.
0: <laughs> much as I can.
1: Well, as we stated earlier, it is another red-letter day here at the Texas Prairie Chicken Home Company. You've been looking monkeys at my credit plan. rating again? No, that's my credit oh, rating. Okay. So that or that's, the, that's the rating of my restaurant, F. But uh, as we talked about, you know, there are... Moments that you shoot for as a podcaster where you have the people that you really want to talk to. And since December and since Jody's come aboard, we've been blessed to talk to Mike. We've been talked to Nez. We've been able to talk to Circe and and Christian. And now the fifth member of the Mount Rushmore, Bobby Hart.
0: That's right. And, of course, he was part of the famous Voice and Heart team. Mm Mm-hmm. Involved early with the monkeys, of course, by putting together the music for the pilot episode to help get it sold.
1: They created the original monkey sound, the corporate sound, as it were. Yes,
0: which Bobby points out in the interview, it wasn't just a Beatles uh, pastiche; it was also some Stones, some British Invasion. <laughs> The theme is is based mord. on... <laughs> yeah, a Borgishmord.
1: Well, yeah, it's a, the theme has always been based on the Dave Clark Five, Here We, uh, here Catches, we Come Again. Catch us yeah, if you can. Catch us if you can, yeah. Mm-hmm, that's yeah. the one.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so. so that's interesting. And um, Bobby, let's, let's go with a few things I didn't know, like the involvement with uh, Kirshner wanting to be producers and why they didn't get that gig right away. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of our fans listening, they know the story of Tommy and Bobby and how important they are to the entire uh, monkeys project.
1: One of the things, well, I'm not going to I'm not going to spoil it. So I'm the, it, at the end of the at the end of the episode, there is you know there are some things that I say to Bobby from the from my heart. So hang around, it's coming.
0: Something I wanted to mention that I didn't know until I saw a few years ago at the Monkees convention, they screened the great documentary about Boyce and Hart. I think called The Guys. Who wrote them?
1: Guys who wrote them, yep. Mm-hmm.
0: Based on, of course, the 70s, the guys that sang them and the guys that wrote them. Uh, when, who was, were those other
1: two guys? Um, Nishwash and Delenzo Thor- and. Yeah, uh, Delenzo and, and Jonesy? Or Jonesy? Jonesy? Yeah, okay. yeah,
0: Yeah, based on, of course, when the guys got together and toured the country in the mid 70s as they couldn't just call themselves the Monkeys, they called it.
1: Dorrance Jones, Boys and Heart, The Great Golden Hits of the Monkeys, the guys that wrote them and the guys that sang them.
0: Oh, thank him. I don't know if I had enough breath for that. <laughs> but I learned, too, that about the time. The Monkees gig was winding down for Boyce and Heart, and they were doing more uh, as a duo themselves and getting some uh, chart success. Boyce and Heart were successful, even in a small way, of getting the voting age, which was once 21, lowered to 18. Correct. They were approached to produce a song called L-U-V, or Let Us Vote. Mm-hmm. See how clever that is? "L.U.V." A little pop tune, and we'll probably include it here in a bit, that helped get eyes on that campaign now what happened was it took a few years and happened until 1971 the song was out in 68 but it caused the drafting of the 26th amendment in 1971 and apparently there's a long debate not just uh, it didn't just spring forward in the 60s this has been a thing since um world war ii again it comes back to that old thing if i'm old enough to fight in a war and die i should,
1: I be, should. be old enough to vote yeah right
0: So finally, in the 1970 case, Oregon v. Mitchell, a divided U.S. Supreme Court ruled that Congress had the right to regulate the minimum age in federal elections, but not at the state and local levels. Amid increasing support for a constitutional amendment, Congress passed the 26th Amendment in March 71. States promptly ratified it. President Nixon signed it into law that July. I know about this because as a comic book fan collecting back issues, in 1972, of course, that was an election year, mm-hmm. Marvel Comics would end all their stories with a little blurb, a little lettered blurb that said, use the power, 18, to vote. Yep. Telling their young readers and college-age readers, get out there. And,
1: and I have voted in every major election since 1978 when I turned 18.
0: So. You voted for Pat Paulson, I think, back
1: in that. uh I voted for Pat Paulson in 1968. However, as a writing candidate, it didn't really count. Where's the the ladies man? at the bowl, the ladies at the polling place when I was 8 were very kind. They laughed at me and said, "Here here 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 son. Go ahead, do what you got to do."
0: Right. Right. Where's Pat Aren't Paulson you,
1: now? Bless your heart.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but that documentary, the guys that wrote him, of course that was Rachel Lichtman's famous documentary and I was so mm-hmm. happy to see it at the Monkees convention in 2014 and I hope it gets a large uh uh large viewing, a large release soon because it shows um not just not just the highlights of Voice and Heart, but some of the, the fallow periods that every mm-hmm. successful star goes through and uh, things we don't know about because we don't get to see except usually the hype.
1: When they're when they're there, when they're out in front. And that's you that's that's the only real contact we have of them. So of course they're gonna be it's like the we would have never to, to bring it back to Nes for a second, we would have never known about the celebrity psychosis until after he wrote the book.
0: Very true. And Mike's book has opened up my eyes to some things I mm-hmm. assumed about him or thought was his thought process as a mm-hmm. way of creating and living that... Oh, yeah. What do you know? He's just like us. I mean...
1: Except he was psychotic back then. Why? Well, you
0: know, so, I, <laughs> I love him, but he's psychotic. <laughs> like, Where's that green toboggan on nah. his head? For those of you not in the South, they call a wool hat a toboggan. Not a toboggan, a toboggan down here.
1: Yeah, and boys, it's hard to get one to fit my big toe these days. Mm.
0: <laughs> Now let's flash ahead. It's the mid '70s. Flash, ah, the monkeys themselves had that abortive meeting about the McDonald's commercial,
2: mm-hmm.
0: where, if we're to believe it, Peter didn't want anything to do with it because of his vegetarian stance.
1: Nez didn't want anything to do with it unless it included a movie.
0: Right. So we have two monkeys, Davey and Mickey, mm-hmm. getting the brainstorm to team up with two songwriters, Tommy and Bobby.
1: Yep, and they figured that was the easiest thing to do because, it, and it's simple because without Boyce and Hart, who knows what would have happened. And Boyce it and It would have heart, been Gary, if if if, if, if Donny had had his way, it would have been Gary Lewis and the Playboy's Light.
0: And who else knew the songs?
2: Mm-hmm, that's I mean, true.
0: I'm making a joke, but these were the writers of most of the hits people will want to hear. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, you're going to hear soon, Tommy and Bobby also recorded their own versions of some of these hits. Mm hmm. And back then, it could have been. I want to talk about this a bit. It could have been another 1986, ten years earlier, because the monkeys was receiving a bit of a renewed popularity because the syndicated shows were back in in the public view as an after-school syndicated, stripped-in daily show, which I was digging.
1: True, but I don't think I don't think it was the timing was right. Right, and we discussed that with Bobby.
0: Right. But it was an interesting time. I remember in the 80s, when a lot of us were getting Japanese monkeys imports because of their Japanese revival there, somebody repressed the um, live in Japan, Dolan's mm-hmm. Jones, Voice and Heart Disc, and I thought, this is the closest I'll ever have to a live monkeys recording, mm-hmm. official recording, yeah. not just what we saw on live, uh, or, or the um, live on, on tour. The
1: tour out, the tour, the on episode. tour episode, yeah. Yes.
0: Um, So, I remember thinking that, but you're going to hear Alan mention a few things about something that most fans have forgotten about or maybe haven't even seen. Mickey, as a young, budding director, Mm -hmm. decided in 1976 to promote these American shows Mm -hmm. by making a syndicated half-hour special that was almost like an infomercial 10 years earlier. Pretty much. If they had thought about this, but they didn't, and Mickey even jokes about it in the special, they could have tacked on, order now, and you are get... The Dolan's Jones Boys and Heart album. Yeah. It was structured like that. This little half-hour variety special they did. It
1: was an infomercial before infomercials were not cool.
0: Exactly. And syndicated items like this. Stuff new for syndication was still unheard of. We'd get that big blast in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Star Trek The Next Generation. All here's those comedy start, yeah. shows. Absolutely. But this is 1976 where, yes, you had Hee Haw and you had The Muppet Show. Mm-hmm. But very few new things were made for syndication. So here's Mickey and the guys. Mm-hmm. I never saw it. I didn't even know about it until probably the 80s when it circulated among us fans on tape. Mm-hmm. But yes, they made a video special. It was kind of a, a shortened Donnie Marie variety special with comedy, with bits, with them, you know, Doing lip-syncing the to yeah. their songs. Mm-hmm. The stuff you'd hear when you saw them live. Very ambitious, very... Uh... Yes, what's going on? Alan is, uh, is cracking up,
1: folks. No, I'm just flashing glam Dolans in my head right now.
0: <laughs> yes, Nikki. Mickey, who I think is his
1: pee pick, and heart.
0: I think this is a response to Kiss at the time. The biggest for those of you that weren't around back then, the biggest thing going. Mickey does a glam rock, rocky horror version of Stepping Stone. You think he's referencing?
1: I think he's re- referencing Mark Bowen and T Rex. Right, I really it could do. have been
0: all of the above and too, Bowie. Right?
1: I mean, yeah, but, Bowie too. And well, we don't give too much away about this because I yeah you know, that was one of the questions I asked Bobby about right. this. But one of the interesting things that I came across it. I watched it again after, I, after we, he and I talked. And there were things that I did not realize because I never sat through the whole thing and went through the credits. <sighs> Boy, was I white. Was I surprised. For those of you that have seen the Dolan's Jones Boys and Heart TV special... Not only was I not aware that Coco was the, was the one female, was the only other cast member in that other than the band. As the receptionist. As the receptionist. Mr. Dones, Mr. Jones, Mr. Boyce, Mr. Hot. She's, uh, she, she, we're all somebody's cuddly toy. That, that, that mm-hmm. bit right there in the cuddly toy just cracked me up. But also involved in this was, was Bill Martin, who um, wrote All of Your Toys, the lost hit single, and was involved with Nez. Is it Bill Martin? No. We uh, Dorn- dear. We, no I'm thinking I'm thinking of Bill Deer that was right. involved with I Ness, do that too. with uh with television and elephant parts. but Bill Martin also wrote during the summer right uh, the uh Keith Allison was involved in it uh for those of you that are into uh recording engineers if the name Humberto Gatica means anything Humberto he, he was uh he worked with Chicago during its heyday and there was one other person who was involved with uh but yeah this 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 was a unique for its time. And, and I think Mickey once again proved he was ahead of the, he was ahead of the curve, right? And for but those it just you, wasn't ready. The, the, the world just wasn't ready for it yet.
0: And for those of you scratching your heads, I will put up a link on our page. Says, this thing's all over YouTube.
1: Yeah. It comes in two parts.
0: Yes. And I know why, because if YouTube slaps you down, that's part of their penalties. You only get to yeah. uh, submit things in 15 minute increments. Don't ask me how I know this folks. I, uh, I am a bad boy. We- I'm a bad boy. <laughs> Where's Ron Masak when you need him?
1: What do you mean, listen, Al? If you're going to do that, do me a favor. Cut it into two parts. Well, yeah, I don't want you to be in YouTube jail again.
0: There you go. And the Ron Masak reference is and, and uh, a reference to our 13th episode, still available, always available for your listening pleasure.
1: TPCHC Monkeys Cast. Mon- yeah, monkeyscast.blogspot.com.
0: It's all there. Where you found this episode, you shall find past episodes. That's right. So, yes, it was a very interesting special. If it had been seen in more markets, it may have even made their concert tours even more successful. Mm-hmm. And they were successful from what we hear. Maybe not eighty six successful.
1: Oh God, no! Nothing but, was it. You know, you, you, eighty six. You talk about the third grossingest tour right. of the of the of the year. But exactly. I'm because I asked Bobby about. The uh, the timing everything, but you're 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 stealing the thunder from the interview, right. man.
0: So nope. what hey, well, I got an idea. Okay. Why don't we play the interview right now?
1: Hey Al. Yes. I got. An, uh, listen, I got an idea. Oh well, yeah. You see the button that replaced the shot collar button? The green button. The green button. Yes. Mash it button. You mean like this? I want to go back to the to the beginning about your musical background. How how did you? When did you decide to start that music was where you wanted to be? Talk about uh, how you, you know, when it came to you that you wanted to write songs as a creative outlet.
3: Well, I knew I knew I wanted to have a, a career in music right right from way back. Uh, I'd say maybe eight or ten years old, and but I was pretty shy in those days, in grade school days, and so I I figured well I'll be a disc jockey, and I, that way I can I can be in music I can. Uh, I can be a star in my hometown, but nobody will ever see me. And uh, and that's what I thought I would do up until uh, my teenage years when it started to creep into my consciousness that maybe I, I could actually be a pop star. But it was, you know, just creeping in there. And uh, so I I uh, signed up for the Army Reserve Program so I could get that the draft out of the way and get over to the Don Martin School of Radio as soon as I could. So I got to, to Hollywood, 18 years old, to go to radio school. And I switched really, really pretty quick. I got a, a job printing record labels to sustain myself over here. And, and I, we used to pass a little recording studio every, uh, every day, going and coming, walking to this uh, print shop. And it said, uh, the marquee on top said, come in and see what your voice sounds like, $10. So it really started uh, eating away at me, and I finally got up my nerve and went in on a Saturday, plunked down my 10 spot and uh, and made a little demo that when uh, the studio engineer played it back for me, it sounded like something to me that could be on the radio. So I dropped out of disc jockey school, and that was my goal. Uh, from then on to become uh, a, a hit recording artist. So it's a long answer, but uh, the, the the question was, how did I start writing? Well, after spending all my Saturdays in this little demo studio, uh, somebody sent me over to see a record producer named Jesse Hodges, and uh, he listened carefully to my little demos, and he said, well, you sound pretty good, kid, but I'm only signing... Uh, acts that have their own material. So go home and write some songs if you want to, and come come back and see me. So just because he said to do it, I did it. Yeah.
1: well, yeah, better advice has never been given. I can tell you that. From <laughs> um, so you're you're there on your own. I've always been curious as to how you and Tommy met. Talk about how you guys came together, and at what point did you realize, hey, this guy's got something, and you know, we might be able to make something really good here.
3: I met him right there where I sort of left off in the story when uh, Jesse Hodges uh, assigned me to a production deal and and started making records with me. Tommy was also in his stable of, uh, I don't think he was recording him then, but he would come into the office there, and that's where I first met him, in the Jesse Hodges' office. And uh, we kind of became friends. Uh, we, We eventually did become good friends, but... I would see him in and out of there, and uh, it actually happened through uh, Curtis Lee, who I met Curtis because my buddy from high school was going to college in Pasadena, and one weekend, he'd come over on the weekends because it was, you know, glamorous Hollywood in our little (laughs) apartment, Mm -hmm. and uh, one day he brought over Curtis with him, and he said, Kurt uh, sings really good, you know, he's in our choir or whatever, and and, uh, now that you have a record deal, maybe you can help him. So I took him down to meet Jesse and Jesse uh, did uh record him and uh and so Kurt uh and Tommy started hanging out. And uh I'm not sure exactly what their original connection was, but they met and and hit it off and they were bachelors and I was I was married. And uh so the weekends they'd come up and they would it would be Kurt and Tommy every weekend. And then Curtis got uh, discovered on a show out here doing a local show. And uh, and a uh, the guy who owned Dunes Records in New York saw him and signed him and sent him brought him to New York to to be as uh, record one of his recording artists along with Ray Peterson and some others. So then Tommy would come and hang out with uh, with my first wife and I, and uh, on the weekends, and we did become really good friends. And until I guess that that went on for a year and a half or so until Tommy Kurt. Uh, convinced Tommy, uh, convinced, uh, convinced the owner of this record company, Dune's Records, that Tommy was needed to, to, to come back there and write some hits. So he got signed and got to got his big break to go to New York and work for a major uh, record company publisher. Uh, so when I got a chance to, to um, I'm probably getting ahead of your questions here, but when like I got a chance to, to join Tommy finally after a couple of years, at the end of my marriage and so on, that's when we started uh, writing uh, in serious, uh, becoming serious writing partners.
1: Well, no, you actually kind of led into my next question. Was good.
3: You know, the, this is the, working the, out the,
1: great. <laughs> See, we're psychic on this, Bobby. We're psychic on this. Yeah. You know, like. So, talk up a little bit about what the early days of you two working together was like, and did you guys share the the Did you guys both write lyrics and melodies, or did you focus on one and Tommy on the other?
3: Yes, we uh, we both wrote for so long um, by ourselves that we both uh, developed ab- abilities on both fronts, lyrics and, and the melodies. And so when we got finally got back together uh, this time as writing partners, not, not just as friends, uh, that's how we wrote. And we we uh, <clears throat> most of the the New York uh, uh, writing teams did not work that way one was doing the music and one was doing the the words and uh but we were because we both had abilities in both areas we just had a lot of fun bouncing off each other and uh, throwing out lines and throwing out melody ideas and and so we were different than any of the other people that we met back there teams
1: well well, that that brings uh, a follow-up As a songwriter uh, that's been doing this for you, which is easier for you to write melody or lyrics
3: you know it's uh, it's strange because uh, we continued writing that way throughout our our career together voice and heart and and uh, but after uh, Tommy quit the business for for a period of time and and uh, one day I got a call from uh, a music publisher, and he said, "I want you to." Uh, to meet this guy named Dominic Frontieri. He's, he's, he scores movies and he's he's got a lot of, you know, he, a lot of, he works a lot, but he likes to do uh, theme songs for his movies and he's always looking for a lyricist, so I said, you'd be the perfect one. So that was kind of the first time I realized that I was seen more as the lyricist than the Boys and Heart uh, duo, and that's really when I started to, you know, that was a whole different skill set when I had to I had to put a a word to every note and put a syllable, I guess, to every note that, uh, he would give me a tape, Dominique, and, and it was a melody on it. And I would have to put a syllable to every, every note in the melody. And that was like, Hmm, that's different than just throwing stuff out and, and having fun. You know, that was like a real, I wanted to do it because it it was, it 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 actually became a job, right? It was a job. Yeah. For the first time. And, uh, And I wanted to develop a new skill. And so over the years since, so that would have been uh, 72, 73, something like that, uh, I have many times done that kind of a job when a a movie scorer is looking for a theme song or for somebody who is predominantly, uh, I read a a number of songs with Jack Keller who only did melodies. And uh, so I I was ready for him when he came on.
1: Well, since you kind of, since you brought up Dominic Frontieri, he, he was also, if I remember, not only did he do movie scores, but he also did television, if if I remember correctly, because...
3: Yes, he did, God yeah. Knows
1: I haven't, God knows I haven't watched a lot of television over the years, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. That brings to my, I'll jump ahead to this one question. How did you end up writing the theme song, to Days of Our Lives?
3: Well, after I met Tommy in New York, I got a chance to go back and join him. He'd been there a couple of years, and... uh so we we started writing in serious, and we had uh, I think that first year in 1964, I think we had six chart records, and uh, one of them was uh, went to number three. I think was Jay and the Americans come up a little bit closer, and uh, and then I I wrote with Teddy Randazzo and Bobby Weinstein a song called Hurts So Bad for Little Anthony, mm-hmm. and a number of other ones. Uh, on the strength of that, we got. Uh, we got uh, signed by Screen Gips Columbia Music and sent back to the West Coast. So when we came out here, it was a real advantage that we were working for a publishing company that was owned by a, a movie a movie conglomerate and a television, you know, Screen Gips television. So we could get sent out on these projects. <clears throat> I believe you asked me about Days of Our Lives, right? Correct.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So if that was one of the first projects we got sent out, to do, we went over to meet with a very nice older couple, a man and wife who had been very successful in going back to the radio days uh, with soap operas. And, uh, and they wanted to start a, a they were coming up with a new soap opera called Days of Our Lives, of course. And they needed music for it. And they kind of they told us what they wanted. So Tommy and I wrote and demoed uh, a, a nice melody for them, thinking that's what they wanted, and they turned it down.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So we did another one, and they turned that one down, too. And uh, Tommy and I were in the studio doing demos when we got the news from our publisher that they'd turned down our, sec- our second try. <laughs> and Tommy said, forget these guys. They don't know what they want, and we should be writing hit songs. Let's just, let's just move on. And I said, oh, okay, Tommy, but I got one idea. There's a Hammond B3 Oregon sitting over there in the studio. You just roll the tape and I'll, I'll play some stuff that sounds to me like the kind of music that was, I would hear on my mother's radio soap operas when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. So that's what we did. And that's what's been on the air for 52 years, five days a week.
1: <laughs> like sands to the hourglass. I love it.
3: Yeah.
1: What yeah. a story. That's, that, that, that's, that's pure genius. I got to tell you about it. That's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> um, now going back to when you went to when you went to New York with Tommy the first time, and you did you guys actually do did you actually perform live in clubs too, or were you just uh, like say before you had the real job with Dominic Frontier? Did you guys have to work other jobs as well, or did you actually go out and perform some of your some of your original compositions back then?
3: No, we didn't perform in New York. Uh, I was signed to to, uh, to a publishing company called South Mountain Music and. Uh, and so we would go to the little, we'd go to their offices every day. And Tommy would, Tommy was living in Riverdale, and he'd meet me. And uh, we'd go in the little cubicles that you've probably heard about, where it's just big enough for a piano and uh, two chairs.
1: Like they talk about with the Brill Building, yeah, I re- I remember. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, same kind of thing. Only it was uh, uh, at the Bell Bell Sound Studio Building. And uh, so we would we did that, and then when the advance money ran out. For me to live on, uh, and so I wasn't actually exclusive with them anymore. Then, then Tommy uh, introduced me to West Farrell, and it was with West that we wrote "Come a Little Bit Closer," and uh, and several other songs uh, for his publishing company. Actually, he didn't own it, but he was running it as a as a I don't know, just he was he was promoting the songs. So uh, we didn't perform there, but. When we got signed and and came back out here to Los angeles uh we were getting a hundred dollars a week each, and which was enough to have our a little uh, house that we shared in the in the hills and and not miss too many uh meals <laughs> so i got I started moonlighting then i i uh I was playing nightclubs around town with uh, some of my musician friends mm-hmm. and uh and Tommy uh, moonlighted at a, at a little piano bar in the Los Feliz area. Here, it was a Mexican restaurant with a piano bar, and uh, on Saturday nights he would they'd pack him in there uh, with uh, middle-aged ladies who he would wink at and uh, and entertain with with his <laughs> with his uh, with his a uh, style that was only his. Wow, I'm telling you that's. Uh, that that that
1: I, I can see Tommy doing that, knowing what little, knowing what I know about, or what what I what I know I've seen about him. Yeah, I can see him doing yeah. that, and I'm sure that helped an awful lot. But, um, you mentioned writing "Come a Little Bit Closer" and hurt so bad, which is actually one of my favorite Lil' Anthony tunes. And even when you hear him perform it today, it's amazing. It gives you goosebumps because he's <laughs> just such a dynamic performer. What yeah. how, back then? How did you feel the first time you hear? one of your compositions on the radio and then when you find out that it's a hit what, what I, I know I've heard Mickey and Davey talk about the first time they heard Clarksville on the radio but when you you know like for example uh let's see um for come a little bit closer I, I think come a little bit closer would have been first do you remember yes. the initial reaction when you heard that on the radio for the first time and then saw that it peaked at number you know got to number three
3: uh, it was that transition period when uh we were getting ready to move to the west coast and i heard it first not on the radio i, I heard it when the record came out i got a, a west Farrow played it for us in his studio and gave us a copy i mean in his office and uh i really thought that that was the b side I, I don't know what was wrong with me but i thought that the a side the other side of the record was going to be the hit and I wasn't excited at all about it oh man and uh i don't i can't even tell you the first time I heard it on the radio. It might have been out here mm-hmm.
2: uh
3: but I was very surprised that it it became the biggest out of something like twenty two mm-hmm. uh hits by j and the Americans and uh yeah, it was a big surprise for me uh, what 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 I remember uh being uh excited the most about I guess was ha- having to back up maybe six years was when I first heard myself uh my first record mm-hmm. uh, that I sang as a as a solo my first Bobby Hart record on the radio because I had gotten booked this uh record producer that I told you about had booked me on a on a weekend tour that we went down to Texas. It was El Paso I think and mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, we ended up in Midland, Odessa, Texas. And uh, they assigned me this driver. Uh, they thought I was a star because they'd been playing my records down there. And of course, it wasn't a hit anywhere else. But <laughs> anyway, uh, this guy was driving me around and uh, he was real impressed with me and so on. And, and while we were driving, uh, he well, the record came on the... The song came on the radio, and that was just such a mind blower. And he said, Yeah, they're playing a really heavy rotation down here and to promote the show. And uh, the kicker to that story is that that night uh, there was a local guy named Roy Orbison who was opening one of the opening acts. And I was very impressed with him. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and of course, he hadn't had any hits yet. And it was years later. I what ever happened to
2: him, uh, you know.
3: Yeah, exactly. It was years later that I was thumbing through, uh, I was looking at a Greatest Hits album for Roy Orbison, and I see that he had a writer, he had a co-writer on almost every one of those big hits named Joe Melson. And Joe Melson was the name of the guy that was my driver in, in Midland, Odessa that day. Wow. Yeah, I,
1: that's amazing. I, also, I, I often heard the rumor that Roy Orbison ended up being the uh, at one point Ben ended up being the closing act for some group out of Liverpool. I forget what their name is. So it's
3: like. Yeah, that's
1: true. That's true. All right. So we 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 let's we set the wayback machine now for '65. How did you guys actually get to get involved or, or become acquainted with Burton Bob?
3: Another one of those uh, assignments, the, our, our publisher, Lester Sill, uh, sent us over to me with uh, Bert Schneider and Bob Rafelson on the Columbia Pictures lot. And uh, Bert did most of the talking, and he told us what they had in mind. He called it Amer- an American Beatles on television, was the concept. And uh, they they needed three songs for the pilot. That was the first thing coming up. And they also wanted to release records with these with these guys, which hadn't been cast yet. Of course, it was a year before. And uh, we were very excited about it, Tommy and I both, because we remembered what happened when Ricky Nelson sang the first time on the Ozzy and Harriet show, and what what power there was when you combined uh, network television with records. And so Tommy, being Tommy, uh, really. Uh, sold us and and convinced them that we were the guys that knew how to do what they needed. And of course it didn't hurt that our publisher had recommended us highly and he was, we were the first ones he sent over.
1: Yeah, so Lester wherever you are up there thank you because
3: <laughs> thank you for for that and a multitude of other uh, of things that he did for us. Donnie Kirshner, of course was was the big cheese of Screen Jim's Columbia Music but he stayed in in uh in his offices in New York City, he didn't fly, and uh, and he didn't like to come west, even though we had uh, a branch office down here. So it was Lester that really sent us over. And uh, so th- they gave us the job that day. They said, okay, good, you got the job. We need these three songs for the pilot. So we that was our first project. <clears throat> and uh, we wrote uh,
2: uh, Let's Dance let's On... Dance
3: on. Yeah, for the for the dance scene, and we and we, uh, we already had a song called "I Want to Be Free," which we thought would lend itself uh, to the scene where Dan- where um, Davy is walking on the beach, having lost his girlfriend.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: There's up there's lines in there about walking on the beach, so that that was ready ready-made.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And then they they had told us, they'd given us an idea of what they the, the elements that they'd be looking for in the theme song, not the style or anything, but and they knew that there was going to be some pushback because this was the first uh, television sitcom that where there was no authority figure in the house. These guys just all lived on their own and they were long haired hippie looking guys. And so it was like a breakthrough and he, they weren't sure I was going to be received. And so yeah, yeah. we, uh, we worked in those lines into the theme song about, you know, we're just trying to have fun. We're not, uh, mad at anybody and and we're friendly and and uh, so uh, we actually wrote the song uh, we we uh we wrote a lot of times out of doors we'd go to the beach to write and we'd go to parks and things but this time we decided to walk down to a park that was walking distance from the house we were renting in the hills and uh on the way down um uh, Tommy started. Uh, I, I started snapping my fingers. I think first, and then Tommy started uh, throwing out a couple of lines. Uh, I think Tommy was actually snapping his fingers, and I was doing the kind of sound with my mouth. And uh, and we and we, we had we had a lot of the we had the, the basic structure of the song by the time we got down to the park, and then, then we worked on getting those lines in there that would make the the four guys not seem so – not seem uh, threatening Yeah, exactly.
1: Well, that, that brings to mind a couple uh, – I'm going to combine a couple of questions that I had here. Now, I've seen interviews with you in the past where you talk about when you went on the road for the first time with the guys with the candy store profits and actually saw how big this thing had gotten – do you remember what yep. your? Did you guys have any any expectations when you first started before all of before the mania began? And did you did you have any any idea what it was going to be?
3: We didn't realize that it would be like the like Beatlemania. We we didn't realize it would go to that extreme. We thought that self, having them sing on TV every week was going to be was going to make it a successful project, and we had worked for a year. Uh, really fine tuning our uh, vision of what the songs would what the songs would sound like what the sound would be for the guys what the influences that we would uh, that we would consider combining would look like and uh, so we were we were really ready to go with it when uh, when we finally got the project back and you know the story uh, uh, that we when tommy when uh, when donny kushner finally flew out here <laughs> uh, after the show was sold that's that was actually my point to the earlier question that was that we didn't have competition from the big the big guns in new york the writers like goffin and king and and mann and wild and those people uh, nobody seemed interested in this little project it didn't seem like uh you know didn't i don't think donny took it seriously but when it finally got Sold to NBC, and they had sponsors and so on. That's when Donny flew out and said, "You guys, uh, you've had hits as writers, but not as producers. And I can't take a chance on you guys are producing this uh, 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 project of this magnitude." And that's what he tried out uh, <clears throat> three or four of other producers, and didn't like any of the stuff he came that he, that he heard. Finally, brought out Goffin and King, and there was a fiasco in the studio, and uh, they flew home in the middle of the night. So finally, that was our, our 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 cue to to get a hold of Donnie the next day at the office and say, you know, look, we worked on this for a year, we know what we're doing. Um, here's the deal: we'll we'll, we'll take my band, the Store Profits, into the studio, and we'll just rehear, you know, work up a couple of the t- production. Uh, and a couple of the songs come down and listen to it. It's a 10 dollars an hour studio. If you don't like you what you heard, it'll cost you 10 bucks. If you like it, you got to give us our our project back. So that's how we, that's how we yeah.
1: Uh, Bobby, are you sure you haven't read any of my questions cuz it's like you're lead- <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're doing great lead-ins to the next ones. Uh, I, this is this is awesome. I got to tell you. <laughs> Good. <laughs> that bringing uh, combine let me combine one real quick and then get to the second one was there you guys said you knew what kind of sound that you wanted to create was there anybody that you were trying to i guess for lack of a better term emulate that you thought would work best for the guys and second with the snuff garrett and the mickey most and the carol king were you guys actually in the studios did you get Did you get a chance to observe any of that firsthand and uh was it no. what is as bad was it as bad as they say it was
3: no, we didn't, we didn't observe it firsthand. Our contact was Lester, and so Lester would hear it from Donnie, and he'd pass it on to us every morning The new, the latest, <laughs> the latest fiasco. So we knew what, we knew the progress. We were really bummed out, of course, when we got kicked off the project sure. after working on it for a year. But uh, we knew what was going on, and, and we knew the right time. That was our cue to, to go in and, and pull on Donnie's short tails.
1: Uh, it's, it, 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 yeah, it's the, the, the stories that you hear and it's too bad that we can't get any first, any, any first hand. Yeah. I can, I can only imagine, I can only imagine because when you think back to the story that you guys have told about the first monkeys recording session with all four of them, I can only imagine mm-hmm. you got how you guys handle it versus say snuff Garrett or Mickey Mo. And I can, I can honestly see Carol carol king in tears after about the third take yeah just, <laughs> i love her to death but I, I i would not have traded places with her for anything that night but um i think there um, was
3: i think there was pushback from ne- the Nesmith faction of the guys even that early i think that they they really felt they they should be writing the songs and producing the records and interesting. And of course uh donnie and uh and even Bert and and bob uh Knew that they needed to have professionals, and that was the one of the reasons. I, I always, I always think, and this is not necessarily ever been confirmed, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that the reason uh, Columbia bought Nevins Kirshner Music, which was the number one music publisher at the time, with all this talent, was that they wanted to have access to the top, top uh, writers, songwriters, and and production uh, producers. So, and, you know, Bert's dad was, was Abe Schneider, mm-hmm. the president of Columbia, so he's the one who bought it. And I have no proof of this, but kind of think the timing was suspicious <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> that they did that because they needed that access.
1: I'm sure that, yeah, it, it makes sense hearing you say that. Um, that leads into uh, talking, about, talking about Donnie. You've dealt, you know, dealing with him firsthand, can you talk a little bit about his his style if you will about producing and is there anything that we've heard that is either not right or hasn't been played up or hasn't been blown up enough out of proportion about Donnie and his reputation
3: well he had a good you know he he had a PR firm and he liked to call himself a, a man with the golden ears and so on or have other people call him that but he he deserves it in the sense that look at the stable of talent that he amassed uh, at the Nevin's before, you know, even before he sold it, uh, and and look at the his, his track record with picking songs for artists and getting them to them, and and the, yes, they were of course the the writers had a lot to do with that. They were writing songs particular for particular artists. But uh, he was always kind to us, Tommy. Before the monkeys, uh, Tommy and I would fly to New York once in a while to see him and play him some of our new songs, and stay in the company apartment in, in uh, Manhattan. And he was always uh, a, a very uh, supportive in those days. And I understand uh, his. I understand his. Uh, what was behind his feeling that he couldn't take a chance on unknown record producers? Uh, with a group like the monkeys, or a show like the monkeys, so we got along fine. And when he even then, when he came out, and he would come to our sessions some sometime, uh, and uh, you know, he always had a pocket full of hundred dollar bills for whoever he thought needed one, his driver or whatever. And uh, it's very generous that one—not not us, but <laughs> it was very generous to watch. He had. Uh, he had every right to think that this would work the way it always worked that that uh the the guy in charge would decide you know what songs would be recorded and who would who would produce them and he just kind of ignored this this mounting uh pressure from the four guys themselves the difference in this situation was that there was the the show and the show's producers in between and so they were hearing from both sides they wanted what donny could provide but they also wanted to keep their four guys happy and as they got more and more power because the show uh you know had been renewed for the second season um that was that was when they made their their big play and uh and donny uh, Donnie, you know, continued not to listen to what to their demands, and and finally that was the the end of him. I and I'm sure he was very surprised. We all were.
1: Well, yeah, I, I I think a lot of it had to do with him just presuming that everything it was going to be like every other act that he dealt with. And I think he under, I don't know whether he was oblivious to it or he. It seems like he just completely underestimated what the 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 combination of the, the factors in this project brought.
3: He, he came out of uh, he came out of music music publishing, and he was at, at the top of his game, the top of the game. Um, and but he was brand new, you know. Once he when he sold his company to Screen Gems Columbia, the part of the deal was that he would be the music supervisor on any of the of the television shows. He didn't know that job at all far as i know and he hadn't had any contact with that and so having that extra element in there uh of the of the show uh he didn't understand that that the, that the stars of the show could get very 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 uh powerful
1: he apparently wasn't paying attention or didn't watch Ozzy and harriet back in the day so
3: <laughs> yeah. well that was nepotism it was no problem back there <laughs> yeah, true uh
1: yeah eh, well you know it but it's it, it's the closest thing it it was the closest thing ever to the to the monkeys eye at least from from my memory and of me being less than 60 it's you know i only saw what i saw in the reruns so but
3: um yeah that's a, well that you know that reminds me that i didn't fully answer that other question about uh emulation
2: mm-hmm.
3: uh i don't know if i answered that at all but yeah. anyway my, my my answer to that is we we knew right from the beginning that the producers of the show called it American Beatles on television, but we also knew that if we if we uh, were obvi- too obvious uh, emulating the Beatles, that would not be uh, a good for a new act. And and our, that year when we were planning what the sound should should be and the, and the type of songs, we were con- we were considering all kinds of. Acts and it, w- and it wasn't just the Beatles that they, they they were in the mix. So emulation. What's that? What's that uh, John Lennon line that? Uh, uh, well, I can't I can't put it right now, but it has to do with uh, um, the inability to emulate your influences is what what causes uh, you to be unique. <laughs> you try to emulate your influences. But you're always going to filter it through your own experiences and your own uh, abilities. And in our case, uh, the case of the monkeys, it was a whole hodgepodge. It was a potpourri of of influences.
1: Well, yeah, I so say it's it's easy to see, and, and I think you guys used enough influence of the Beatles. You know, you look at at Louis Louis Lick on Last Train to Clarksville, and for you know for Pleasant Valley Sunday, and hearing that's the great thing about the the. The box sets that we have now, where we get to hear all the, all the behind the scenes, if you will, you know, the you and Tommy are instructing the wrecking crew and hearing all these little things, how you want it done, that that to me offers a, a phenomenal insight. And are, are you really? That brings to a, a question that I had before we wrapped up. Are you? Are you surprised and are you happy with all this? All these behind the scenes things that we're getting now. Does it does it make you happy to see that this is being being let loose, if you will, so that people can see what you guys went through to to, to make this incredible music?
3: Yeah, it's it's good. I I think transparency is good. It's one of the main reasons that I wrote my memoirs because I'd heard so many different versions of of uh, different monkey stories. So I wanted to. To tell you, to tell everybody who was interested uh, what it was like being there in person and what I experienced, and set the record straight in some some respects, some stories. And uh, that's that's uh, a big part of the book was uh, was for me anyway was was saying, well, this is what I saw, and just not, somebody else might have seen something else. But I, when I was there, this is what I saw.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, one of the stories that we've all heard about is how mickey in those days you almost christened him one take dolens you know does that have to (laughs) do with him him being an actor and being able to take direction Uh, and and being a singer being a singer secondary and an actor first did that make it easier for you guys to teach him the songs and to get what you want without wasting a lot of time on on, on additional unnecessary takes
3: well he had a lot of raw talent in the singing uh category he uh Obviously had had done had been singing for some time, and had, I don't know if he, he probably had a couple of records out before. I don't remember, but he was ready for his uh, for his close-up, you know, and uh, and uh, so he we were just so pleasantly surprised. He he the, the only thing that he was lacking was self-confidence in the beginning, and uh, so it was only it was basically our job. I mean, I could just see Snuffy Garrett in the studio with him. He wouldn't have been concerned with Mickey's self confidence. He would have just been ordering to do what he wanted done. Uh, but we could see right away. He would say, "You know, I don't, I don't know if I could sing this song." You know, and Tommy would take him next door to to Norm's, and they'd have a cup of soup, and they'd come back, and and he'd just go in and nail it. You know, and uh, it was just that. That was all that was missing was his his. Knowing, you know, believing in himself that he could do it, and he did it great.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. Whatever, I I, I I still think when I see him on stage, he he still lacks that self confidence these days. You know, it's it's not like he's been on Broadway or anything like that in between. You know, so
3: yeah, yeah, I don't I don't see that at all anymore. But that, you know that this was a I don't know how, how old was Mickey then? He's a teenager, 22, I guess,
1: something like that. Yeah,
3: yeah and uh and he had success in the acting field as you pointed out but yeah. not as a singer. Yeah.
1: Um moving up toward the end uh toward the uh, the end of your tenure there. You know, it's it's talked about that Donnie removed you guys from the project because he thought you were recording music that wasn't quote unquote monkeys monkeys like. Is is that really true? You know, you talk about uh, I I think it's kicking Stones uh I think Ladies Aid Society was produced or created before that, but along the lines of apples, species, bananas, and pears, and kicking stones. Along that, is that really is that an urban myth, or were you guys were you guys really hoping that the guys that the guys would record these later on?
3: Well, we did record them with them, uh, and we were we had you know Donnie was big into formulas. You know, he liked to he would have his formulas about. What should be included, and so on, and and we did too. In a way, uh, those songs were not meant to be singles. Those songs were meant to be the the Ringo Starr uh, obligatory cut or the novelty cut that the Beatles would have on their albums, you know, and uh, and others uh, for just for uh, variety, I guess. And uh, and we thought that a little humor. We've done well with uh, You're Going to Buy Me a Dog on the first mm-hmm. album. Yeah. And so we we wanted to have one of those for every album. Mm-hmm. So when we cut those, that it was meant to be an album cut. Uh, both of those, uh, Kicking Stones mm-hmm. and uh, Ladies Aid, were cut at the same time, same sessions. Uh, and, and, that's I what they're... Sure I, and I wanted to make sure that I said
1: Kicking Stones instead of Teeny Tiny Gnome, because <laughs> I want to
3: give it yeah, the proper it was, title. A.K.A., yeah. So... Uh, yeah, I don't. I think the where this came from, I I never heard that from Donnie, and I don't believe that's the case. But uh, I have heard uh, Andrew Sandoval, or, or I've seen maybe he's written it somewhere that when he talked to Donnie, that's that's where this rumor came from. That something from Donnie to Andrew, but I don't believe it's the case because uh, the real as soon as they were they took off with Clarksville Donnie was calling every top producer that he knew and asking and saying you want to compete for the next single yeah and so it wasn't uh it wasn't what we were cutting it was who we were now competing against and we had of course Neil Diamond for the second single even though uh, our B side uh, went top 30
2: sure.
3: <laughs> so uh i think you know it was just uh, all dollars and cents to him let's so now we've got access to the to the top guys who didn't know if this was going to happen or not but now it, now it's happening
1: yeah I
3: said, now that you boys
1: have have got the project started i want to bring in my big guns cuz that way i know i'll get what
3: i want <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly well he he just look you know he was just looking for the strongest song you know the i'm believe it was supposed to be the uh, Diamond's next single and uh he talked uh Neil's producer, Jeff Barry, into giving it to the Monkees because they would sell so many records and so many more records. Well, that was going on all over town. People were, were vying for this, you know, and all of a sudden now the Nevins uh writing team staff kicked in and everybody was looking for, for cuts on on the Monkees album.
1: Sure. They, uh, they, they saw what a cash cow was going to be. So, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, that moves me to some of the other music that you guys wrote for the Monkees. You guys wrote some tremendous songs that the fan base, you know, we we question why some of these were not released. Is you know they didn't release more a sides. But outside of the main songs that you guys wrote, including like Stepping Stone and She and Words, is there one or two songs from your memory that you felt should have been or would have been a hit? had it been released as a single it, it, instead of you know being able to convince Lester and Donnie this is going to work because this is b- because of the sound that the guys have uh
3: not really i mean i, I we weren't thinking along those lines we were just uh, happy to get what what we got which was a you know at least one cut on every monkey album pretty much uh so and we were you know very happy that when the guys pulled their coup and said we're going to control our own music now they continue to get voice in art songs
1: well i think and I, and I think that honestly that comes from a a tremendous loyalty that i know dick uh, mickey and davy had for you guys and that uh, and i'm sure that's what led to down the road i'm almost i'm almost to that point but <laughs> i got one other question to ask but after yeah. you and uh after you and tommy went solo as it were out of all the television, uh, the television and movie stuff that you guys did, what is your personal favorite?
3: Well, I think of the of the TV stuff. Uh, uh, Bewitched is the one that holds up the best when I see it now, and then it's still funny and uh, and it went well written, <laughs> and we had a lot of fun doing it. Mm-hmm.
1: And I came across, uh, and I honestly did not know this, and I apologize that I didn't. Uh, please forgive me, Bobby. You guys wrote the soundtrack for Angels Fear, uh Angels Fear to Tread, the uh, the,
3: the follow up to Angels Fear to Tread. Uh, uh, it's called Where Angels Go, Trouble Follows. Thank you. Yeah, I don't know uh, what the yeah. the that's first true. one was called. Uh, the Trouble with Angels.
2: Yeah.
1: The, Ro- the, the Rosalind there. Russell the the Rosalind Russell nun movies, as I like to refer, refer to them.
3: Yes, that's right. <laughs> yes.
1: T- was 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 that. Did you? How, how much fun did you guys have composing all the uh, composing the soundtrack and, and the songs for that movie?
3: Well, it was different because we worked with Lala Schifrin, who was the, the music scorer, uh, and he had he came up with the melody. And much like Dominique, uh, mu- movie scorers don't necessarily have the same kind of chops as as hit songwriters, pop songwriters. And so they give you these these melodies that that we never would have thought of think would be commercial. Mm-hmm. And then we have to try to uh try to make it to do the best we could but just writing the lyrics to it. So that's what he he wrote the theme song and we wrote the lyrics. Wow. That's
1: yeah, that's that's one thing I admire about you. You guys have you guys did so much. And now we'll move it up a little bit to Dolan's Jones Voice and Heart. Were you personally, even though you got bottom billing all the time? And yes, I trust me. <laughs> yeah, you know, I heard that. I, I I had to laugh at that when I heard heard one of the interviews where you said that. So, um were you happy with the way things turned out with that? Um Even though the single and the album didn't really have, you know, I rem- I, I remember the feeling was a was a good pop tune, but didn't get a lot of airplay. The album didn't really have a lot of commercial success. Were I, I, were the concerts gratifying enough for you? And do you think it just was a matter of timing because not so much time had passed since the group project ended in 68 after Head, technically, unlike with with the MTV 20th anniversary explosion in 86?
3: Yeah, it, it might have been a timing thing, but uh, I, I think the worst timing thing was the fact that we were signed by Al Corey at, at Capitol, and, uh, and then just before our record was to come... Uh, he switched over to RSO and be, started running uh, the Bee Gees label. And uh, so that, that happens often, not only in movie, in uh, music, but also in movies and so on, where whoever the head of the studio was who bought a project, once they're gone, that project goes by the wayside. So we didn't get the promotion that we had been promised. Uh, and I do think that uh, I remember the feeling uh, would have been a hit. That would be kind of going back to the one of your... Of previous questions that's one that should have been a hit but I just never got any light of day on the radio yeah.
1: um, one of my favorite parts now and I've grown to love it more over the years of the Dolan's Jones Boy's Heart Project was the TV special um, yeah talk about how that came to fruition yeah. and what uh, you guys, Did you, this was something that you guys all created together, or were there people, uh, people who came to you and said, "Hey, we want to do this for you guys," and, and talk to? No, this was a that.
3: Dolan's Dolan's production. This was a Mickey Dolan's production. Uh, he he was his idea, and uh, and he hired it done or whatever. Got got somebody to put up the music, the money for the for the uh, production. And if there was any money ever made from the production, he, he, it was his money that got made. But uh, it was fun to do and pretty much uh, homemade. A lot of written and, and suggested by Mickey. And then, of course, Davey came up with a little Hatton Came number and did the choreog- taught us the choreography for that. And uh, everybody had a little input into it, but uh, it, it, was a, it was fun to do
1: well my my favorite part is the is the hit well outside of I've grown to love the introduction a whole lot more than I used to <laughs> when it first started yeah. the first thing but uh the uh, the highlight for me of course and I'm sorry to bring this up is the is the hit medley where uh, yeah. the the part of something's wrong with me <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I actually but it's it's fun to watch even to this day to to see yeah. now this is something you might be able to clarify for me um Mickey's glam version of Stepping Was he trying to emulate Bowie, or Mark Bowen or somebody? Was he just trying to be something completely different?
3: Yeah, I think it was. No, I think it was just uh, emulating the style of glam rock in general. With all the different ones rolled in together, and uh, just trying to put it out, a different spin on it.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's it 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 really. I, matter of fact, I'll probably pull it up on YouTube when I get home just to watch it, just to. to <laughs> uh to 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 laugh and enjoy it um one other thing before Willis goes we wrap this up talk about when they reached out to you and let you know that they were going to include whatever's right in the good times 50th anniversary album
3: uh i want to thank uh whoever was in charge of doing that because it was it was nice to keep the keep the record going that the voice and heart have been on every monkey every major monkey album excluding the the movie soundtrack mm-hmm. and of course the the one that they did just us yeah, yeah. Uh, so it, yeah there it was an, it was a nice tip and uh, tip of the hat to uh to us and it was fun it's to do one,
1: it's actually one of my favorite songs off that album it, it grew on me after about the third listen i went you know
3: uh-huh. this this
1: yeah. this is tommy and bobby at their best you know so <laughs>
3: Well, it was great. that it, 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 I have to thank Andrew Sandoval because I know he found it. He pulled it out of the archives, and he's the guy who has the archives. So uh, yeah. in large part, it was uh, it was due to his... Uh, he, he knew about the song for a long time, and it, so maybe he had that in the back of his mind and presented it to Rhino. Yeah, that was fun, and it was also fun that they asked um, asked me to come down and and to sing background. Uh, I sang with uh, Coco Dolan's mm-hmm. Mickey's Sister. Oh, yeah that was a lot of fun and then they asked me to also play organ on another one of the cuts mm-hmm. that that we didn't write and so I had a good time oh uh,
1: that's that's great um so for those of you who have not purchased the book and want to be entertained by some incredible stories by a man who is a a, a master storyteller the name of the book is psychedelic bubblegum and where can people get it now is it still it's still
3: yeah, it's still in print and you can order it at a bookstore, but the best thing is just to uh, to go to Amazon or Target or, or Walmart online, any of the online uh bookshelves you'll find it. And also if you want to listen to it on your on your way to work, uh I did I did uh, read the whole thing. Uh and so we, there's an audio version on Audible and you can get that on uh, Amazon as well or any of those.
1: Outstanding. Now, are you uh How's the creative process these days? Are you still writing?
3: I am. My writing partner, Glenn Ballantyne, and I, from the first book, are writing our second book now, which is totally different. It's not a bio, of course. It's a self-help book uh, on creativity, and uh, we're having a ball doing it.
1: I will will definitely need to do that because, as Al says, I'm one of the most incredibly boring people he's ever met in his life. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Well put that in a cartoon
1: absolutely now (laughs) as we wrap this up uh i i hope that uh, as i said as i told you when i talked to you on the phone my goal is to ask questions that you have not been asked a gazillion times before i hope i was able to do that and thank you does not seem strong enough for all the the music that you've given us as part of our uh the earworms that will will never die in our brain and the Mm -hmm. music that you've all the way from your beginnings with come a little bit closer and Tommy with pretty little angel eyes all the way up to whatever's right. And you are truly one of the Mount Rushmore of interviews that we wanted to do (laughs) for this podcast. And I, Alan, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us. And we, we owe a debt of, we owe a debt of musical gratitude to you because without you and Tommy, the sound, I don't know that we'd still be talking about, the guys musically and 50-plus years later.
3: Well, that's very sweet of you. I appreciate those remarks, and I'm very appreciative that people are still 52 years later listening to this stuff and appreciating it and finding new audiences. So thank you so much. I really enjoyed the interview, and uh, maybe we'll do it again sometime.
1: I appreciate it. Bobby Hart, continued good health, continued success, and I can't wait for the Creativity Book to come out. Thank you so very much, man.
3: You're welcome. Thank you.
1: What an amazing storyteller, man. I, I, I've listened to that interview twice since I did it, and it just, I, I, I'm, I'm picking up more and more stuff each time. Because, you know, at some point, you're trying to focus and you're trying not to fanboy out, but you're talking to Bobby freaking Hart on the other end of the phone, you know?
0: And these are people that have talked to uh, Mike Nesmith himself. That's mm-hmm. pretty high praise, yeah. It is. But it was great. It told me some things I didn't know. Um mm-hmm. And I've read all the books on the monkeys and Boys and Heart. Mm-hmm. I recommend his book greatly. It's a great read.
1: Psychedelic Bubblegum. What a title. Now there is one thing I suppose we should clear up, because I had to clear it up I had to clear it up for you. Right. In the interview, I talk about the Dolan Jones Boys and Heart TV special, and I mentioned to Bobby that my favorite part of the whole thing was the hits medley, but more importantly, the what had me on the floor was when they were doing the song Something's Wrong With Me. What it is, is, if you've not seen the video, is when he, at the end, he's, he's, something's wrong with me, something's wrong, and he stands up, and he's just in a sweater and shorts, and it just, it just, I, I just lost it for some reason, because it was funny.
0: It goes from a close-up of him singing, the camera pulls back, mm-hmm. and he stands up, and you see, he's yes. dressed oddly. He's
1: in his, he's in a sweater and his boxers, so it's like.
0: He dresses about as oddly as these cosplayer people. I just, I don't know what No, to
1: no, say. no, no, do not, do not bite the hand that feeds you, Kimasabi. You don't need to do that, you.
0: Yeah. Well, you look at you now. You're comfortable. I'm sitting here in my tights, my Batman tights, and nothing else, and you're comfortable, and you're not shaking anymore. See? It's all you know
1: good. why? Because yes. i got my eyes closed. That's true, too. And you're <laughs> facing
0: that way. You're facing that oh, way. Oh, Al, please
1: put it away. Oh, no, I can't. The unseeing not happening.
0: I. I am as God made me, sir. <laughs> uh, I would check
1: for a recall online for oh. that.
0: <laughs> oh. All right. We told you earlier. By the time the Monkees Project came along, Boyce and the Heart had a number of hits under their belts. Mm-hmm. But, of course, they are responsible for some of the Monkees' biggest hits. Of course, we've got the Monkees theme, Steppin' Stone.
1: She, uh, words. She. She. Um, Valerie.
0: We uh, go on and on.
1: I'll Spend My Life With You, which is one of my personal favorite ones. And then, of course, Whatever's Right that ended up on Good Times.
0: Which is great.
1: I thought Bobby made an interesting comment about the fact that outside of Head and Justice – there's been a Boys and Hearts song on every Monkeys album. And we have to thank Adam Schlesinger for continuing uh, the fact that he's a Monkeys fan to continue that streak. So, and the most amazing thing to me was hear him drop the names of Lalo Schifrin and um, the guy that did the. Dun uh, Dun. The guy that, Yeah, Mission Impossible. Um, but not only did Tommy and Voice write pop stuff, they composed for film soundtracks. And, uh, and for TV shows.
0: And they appeared on Bewitched and I Dream of Jeannie? They did, both, Screen yes. Gem shows, Okay. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. I remember catching one of those in the early 80s going, isn't that Boyce and Heart? Aren't those monkeys' albums in the background, as mm-hmm. decoration in a record shop set?" Indeed, sir. Indeed. Incredible. I mean, just, just any of those things alone.
1: As a matter of fact, anybody that watches NBC can hear a Boyce and Heart song to this day. You mean on my stories? On your stories, Ethel, yeah, the, like, sand like sands through the hourglass, so go the days of our lives.
0: I've got to get home and see my stories. See
1: John and Marlena, see what kind of trouble they're in this time.
0: Marcia loves John. But does John love Marsha? Meanwhile, Bill loves Brenda. I'm old enough to remember when soap operas were like that.
1: And meanwhile, back at the ranch.
0: <laughs> now, again, when Boyce and Hart went out on their own, of course they looked at the monkeys' success and they said to themselves why can't we do this right so they had a great successful career as a duo
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, a few hits like wonder what she's doing tonight
1: that was the big one that went top ten right out and about Mm -hmm. things like that yep
0: but they did their own versions of some familiar monkeys cuts such as Teardrop City
1: uh Al uh you know something you feeling it I think I'm feeling it your eyes
0: I see it in your eyes
1: 321 K's Jets head time with the real Don Steele back in the saddle again with the Texas Prairie Chicken Home Companion Monkeys Podcast here with that Boyce and Heart exclusive and version of Teardrop, Teardrop City. Boys and Heart!
0: Boys and Heart! Boys and Heart! Boys and heart. Boys and heart.
1: So as you were saying, they also had that uh, that um, song that came out in 68, L-U-V, Let Us Vote, which had an impact on getting the 26th Amendment passed.
0: Right. Lowered the voting age from 21 to 18. So here it is, folks. I think it needs an introduction by a certain someone.
1: 321 KSJ just at time with the real Don Steele. Here's more Boys and Heart on the Texas Prairie Chicken Home Companion Monkeys podcast. L-U-V, Let Us Vote. Boys and Heart. Boys and Heart. Boys and Heart. Boys and Heart.
4: Together in
1: So what else, did you, what else did we determine that they recorded there, my friend?
0: They also did their own version, a very sweet version of I Want to Be Free, and also a very different version of a song they penned called P.O. Box 9847.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's, it's unique. I will grant you that.
0: Don, will you do me the honors of introducing the Boys in Art version?
1: twenty one k is JJ's time with Real Don Steele back in the saddle once more to present Boysen Hearts PO Box 9847. Boysen Heart, Boysen Heart, Boysen Heart.
0: I wonder if Craigslist has cheap shock collars.
1: right from good times but one of the one of the best songs off of justice at least one of my favorite Davy vocals is you and I agreed which is which is one of the highlights of the album but we will not go down that road because that is a complete that will open up the pandora's box again of justice versus that other album
0: which shall not be, may, be named
1: which shall remain named. Let's pull it at the time you know something.
0: my foghorn sound effect <laughs> is getting very very uh, worn out um of course why do you mention this song and I get visions of like Strange hockey mascots on ice swirling around.
1: Oh yeah. It's
0: the colors. If, man. if you've never
1: seen the if you've never seen the monkeys on ice, you're about to see it right now.
0: Yes, Boys and Heart, of course, are responsible for that version of you and I first heard on their Dolan's Jones Boys and Heart mm-hmm. album, album. Just called Dolan's Jones, Jones Boys, Boys and Heart. Heart. Yep. Not to be confused with the concert album I mentioned earlier mm-hmm. that was called Dolan's Jones Dolan's Jones Boys and Heart live in Japan.
1: Mm-hmm. But this is the oh. album that includes I Remember the Feeling.
0: Right. So they did their own wonderful version of You and I back in 76. It was revived for 1996's Correct. Just Us. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that is also another monkey's voice and heart connection. As if you needed more.
1: It's, let's just face it. Tommy and Bobby will always be intertwined with the guys. That's just all there is to it. Right. They're as much, they are as, mu- as much responsible for getting the guys out there and, and helping the guys become a musical entity as anybody as much as Donnie.
0: I have to agree. And it would have been a whole different thing if the monkeys when they cut ties with Kirshner cut ties with his entire stable. So it's a good thing like yeah, you but said the thing can, it is,
1: I don't think Tommy and Bobby were working for the Brill Building. They were, they weren't part of the Brill Building. Right? They were
0: hired like a lot of other folks. Freelancers. freelancers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know what that's like kids. Um, Al? Yeah?
1: Do you hear that beeping in the background?
0: I assume that was your pacemaker.
1: No. Uh Uh-oh. It's that phone, sir.
0: You don't mean...
1: I mean the Jody phone.
0: You mean it's time for the dynamic duo to become the terrific trio? Absolutely. Hello,
1: Jody. Nice lady. Congratulations. You survived your your month-long junket there. How are you doing?
5: I'm doing wonderful. It was probably the best month I've ever had, ever.
1: Well, everything that we've seen so far, as far as your live Facebook feeds, everything that you showed, it it looked like. First of all, the Flower Power Cruise looked to be an incredible time. You know, I I know that you were you tried to enjoy it as much as possible, but I know you were you were having to go back and forth between between uh, Mickey and Felix, but. Talk a little bit about some of your, your favorite memories from the Flower the Power Cruise so far.
5: Well, first of all, if you can believe, the P- Flower Power Cruise for 2019 already sold out. It sold out in not even three weeks. So it was pretty successful. Um, we had so much fun. One of the best things that we did was there was a, um, a panel. At, it was Felix. Peter Noon, um, Mark Lindsay,
2: mm-hmm.
5: and Mickey.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: And it was them, it was all of them discussing about uh, their careers in America. And it was so funny. I'll tell you what, Peter Noon, I never saw Peter Noon. I didn't even know what he sang other than like three songs, which I still think it might only be three songs. Um, his show was fantastic. He was very, very good, but he is so damn funny. Oh my gosh, he was so funny. Um the oh my god, the best. Oh, if you if you haven't seen it yet, um we were we were at dinner and I suggested to Felix having Mickey do good lovin'. And he goes, Yeah, ask him. You know, I would love that. And I said, Okay, and then Lo and behold, Mickey came into the restaurant and Felix went up and said, hey, do you want to sing Good Lovin' with me? And so he goes, yeah, that would be great. So Mickey says to me, dude, I don't think I know the words to it. Like, I've sang it all these years, but I don't know that I, you know, know the words. And so he goes, send me the words. So I had to send Mickey the words to Good Lovin'. And then he wound up, um, It this was so funny, walking in the back backstage, right before Mickey goes on, and he's listening to it on his phone, you know, singing the songs. When he came out on stage, he killed it. It was so exciting. It was proud. I-, I just stood there crying. I felt like a proud mom. Well I
1: so I was I don't I was I, I was trying not to laugh too loud because I know the panel that you're talking about. I saw it and the Peter Noon Beatles seeing the Beatles for the first time. That that <laughs> that story oh just God. totally cracked me up. His, his boys were bleeped.
5: <laughs> he told, he told this story, how he goes, you know. There's like a running gag that uh, celebrities name their kids after where they were conceived, mm-hmm. like Paris and um, Brooklyn, and some of these celebrities that name their kids after where they were conceived. So he says he's doing a show with Van Morrison, and he says, "Hey Van," he says. Um, I understand that pa- the parents named their children after where they were conceived and Van Morrison gave him like this evil look. And he was like, what the hell is that supposed to mean? And he's like, well, I'm, um, I'm just saying, you know, van and, you know, uh, okay. And then he just like got scared and he left. <laughs> I guess Van Morrison didn't find it as funny. I'll tell you what he was so funny though. It was really The four of them together was hilarious. But um, I'll tell you, the show that Mickey did um, with Mark Lindsay, I didn't actually see it when it came around. I really didn't have an interest, honestly. Like, you know, I, I tend to only do projects that I really believe in. And though I love Mickey, I didn't really feel the vibe because I didn't know anything Mark Lindsay sang. I still don't know anything mark Lindsay sang for the most part except kicks and um so we saw the show and i'll tell you something best show i ever saw the crowd was on their feet the entire time it was unbelievable the energy in the room the fab four were there it was so freaking good that i really wish i knew then what i know now because I, i would love to get that that show, I mean, it was that good. And then Mickey did, he did Hey, Hey, We're the Monkeys. Um, and I he's actually never performed that live. I know that people argue with me, but in the 80s, or the six no, yeah, the 80s, they came out to a recording of it. They didn't mm-hmm. sing it. There's a big difference. And if you remember, they blew up the recording. So they didn't actually sing it. And they always thought it would be stupid, but then, um, this was so good. It was such, oh my God, it was phenomenal. Um, had a really good week. Uh, We had a great week, um, with Mickey. Everything was wonderful there. Then came back from Florida, went back out to Florida and we did karaoke. And that was just the most unbelievable opportunity I ever had Mickey was on fire. You would have thought that this was Paul McCartney. The people were flipping out, screaming. They were turning folks away from the door because you, the fire marshal was there, and we exceeded the capacity. This was unbelievable. Mickey was singing. He was. He was. Oh, geez, it was just so amazing. And when he first got there. And I saw all these people there. I was like, oh my God, I'm in so much trouble because it looked like such a chaotic circus. And I thought, oh my God, he's never gonna do this again. Blah, blah, blah. And I got at like 8.45, I said, Mickey, why don't you go take a break? And because it was in a restaurant, the only place that you could take a break is outside where everybody's like drinking and smoking where they shouldn't be. So I go out there, I'm prepared to like get reamed out. Not that Mickey's ever done that, but I just figured this is the last straw. He's very patient with me, but there's no way. I went out there and that man gave me the biggest hug, freaking out how amazing this was. And I was like, you're kidding me. I thought I was like getting fired. I really thought that you would think this was a total mess. And he had so much fun. He said it was the best thing he's ever done. So now we're planning on doing them. Um, hopefully once a month, we're going to work on that um, that schedule. And um, the next one we have is in New Jersey, in Secaucus, New Jersey. And it's actually smaller by half of what we just had. This is an old go-go bar called Charlie's Corner. And they gave me a certain amount of bar stools that I can reserve. Um, we already sold out karaoke opportunities. We already sold out of... Being a guest, um, opportunities. The only thing that I have left is um, being a, um, a somebody that watches the show, being in the audience. It's three hours. It's a hundred bucks, and is the best time you will ever have in your life. It is not like a monkey's concert. It is not like a meet and greet. It is just hilarious and fun. It's interactive. And, oh, my God, these people were just, they were all over the place excited. It was just just unbelievable. It really was unbelievable.
1: Yeah, I can understand it because I don't think he would have ever thought he could pull something like that off. You, with your uh, amazing imagination and creativity, you're the one that pulled that, you're the one that convinced him. But what I wanted to ask was, what was the most unusual non-Monkey song that they did in Florida? Or did they do anything really out of the ordinary?
5: Oh, yeah. Um, a lot of people wanted Daydream Believer, which I find amazing since he didn't even sing that song. Um, uh, yeah. Lisa Leverance, Um, if you look her up on here, she did um, On the Road Again, Willie Nelson. And the whole point that she did that was because it kind of gave Mickey a segue into that he and Nez were going to tour. Mm-hmm. And do you on the road again? And that was why she thought to do that song. So, yeah, she did on the road again. And it was so good. Somebody did Mary Mary. Um, I'm trying to think what else. Um, they did Mary Mary. I think somebody did I'm a believer. Uh, about four people did Daydream Believer. And I don't remember... Oh, and then Lisa also did I got you babe. <laughs> so that was good. Yeah. Well, and at least at least it people...
1: wasn't at least it wasn't all monkey songs. That's the good thing, you know.
5: Well, yeah. You know, I don't, I don't really want to like I've been giving it a lot of thought of breaking out of my shyness, which I'm sure nobody would believe, but I I don't think I would want to do a monkey song. I mean, if I'm going to wreck something, it sure as hell not going to be a monkey song. So, I think that you know, I'm going to stick with a Beatles song, maybe, but it, it really is so much fun. And if anybody can do it, if they go to my website, monkeymeetandgreets.com on the web store for a hundred bucks, we're raising money for Make-A-Wish and you get the barstool is yours. You're reserved. I wouldn't suggest showing up without a reservation. There is no way you're getting in. This line was out the freaking door for three hours. People couldn't get in. Um, and then will be at the East Coast Comic-Con during the day. So basically it's April 27th, 28th, and 29th that we're going to be in uh, Parsippany, New Jersey, the same weekend as Chiller. Um, and then we're going to go over to um, that bar at night, Charlie's Corner. So anybody can just message me if there's any tickets left um, to be able to do this. And I'm bringing my T-shirts. I'm bringing magnets and all sorts of stuff to raise more money. It was just an amazing time. Um because the flower power cruise was so successful, it sold out, like I said. And right now I'm working with Felix Cavalieri from The Rascals because I'm doing the 50th anniversary of The Rascals. And we um, if anybody's interested in doing the up cruise, which is in November, it's this November, and I think it's going to St. Thomas, St. Kitts, and St. Croix, maybe. It's a seven day cruise. If you give the um, code Felix Cavalieri, um, I'm doing private stuff like I do with Mickey. I'm doing that for Felix as well. So if you couldn't get on the Flower Power Cruise because it sold out too quickly, this would definitely be um, an excellent excellent way to have an awesome time and, and meet some famous people and sing a lot and drink a lot. And it was just, it was incredible.
1: Well, I'm, I'm glad you had a good time, and we're glad you enjoyed it. Now, you, uh, I'm going to give you the opportunity to to plug anything else because Felix is going back out on tour, and I understand you managed to arrange to uh, managed to arrange a special band member to go along with this.
5: Oh my gosh! Well, I don't really have anything to do with it, but oh. I I'm no I, well. Wh- I'll tell you what happened was um, so Felix and Jean Cornish were sitting around. And just they, they, everybody's kind of going their own way. Dino does artwork. He's an artist. And um, Eddie does a um, after the rascals show. So he's under contract from Stevie Van Zandt in New York at the cutting room. So Felix and Gene were sitting around and they said, let's just do it for the fans. The fans have been asking, let's do it for the fans. The other two weren't interested. So um, let's do it for the fans. And that's exactly what they did. So. On drums, we have Carmine A Is that right? Am I saying it yep. right?
1: One of the great <laughs> one of the great hard rock drummers drummers of them all, yes.
5: I I mean I, and I and I'll tell you what, I spoke to him the other day. If people aren't familiar with with Carmine, Carmine was in vanilla fudge. He also did this incredible uh project with Jeff Beck. I think it was a piece Beck and it was Something like that. He also, um, yeah, he
1: also had a band called King Cobra because I actually emceed a concert with with him and Kiss without the makeup back in nineteen eighty six. I think it was.
5: Oh my God! Well, he, it, I spoke with him the other day um, because I I understood that he was a fan of the Rassels, so this was a dream come true for him to be asked to play drums. So I. You know, I could read the story, but I felt like I had a connection to him because there is something about life coming full circle when you are and you admire somebody, but then you have the opportunity to work with them. So I asked him about that and he was telling me that when he was a teenager, that he went uh, a place in New York and I actually wrote all this down. I have to find it. He went to a place in New York and was and before the rascals were big and they were the young rascals, he had the opportunity to ask Dino how to play a certain uh, beat or or whatever it was, whatever they call it on the drums. And Dino wrote it down with him. So he said Dino was his, he was his um, idol on the drums. And yeah. And then, um, and so him being asked to do this, he's been friends with, with, um, with Gene for a long time. Um, but being asked to do this is like me working for Mickey. It just is an amazing opportunity. And um, so he's going to go out on the road. Uh, he's in the Hall of Fame. And then I also asked him about his connection with the monkeys because Vanilla Fudge did I'm a Believer. And oddly enough, I detest remakes. I don't like any remakes by anybody, and usually. What is this
0: very this- episode about? Oh, Smash Mouth.
5: <laughs> oh, oh, I'm sorry. Let me tell you, I want to smash my head into a wall every time I hear that song. That's and bad. so yeah. I don't like I don't like remakes. But um, I think a couple of months ago, my kid was, we were driving in the car and my kid found this heavy version of I'm a Believer by Vanilla Fudge. And I remember him playing it for me. And I remember thinking to myself, this actually isn't bad. I mean, of the remakes that I've heard, somehow they made Sort of a heavy metal version of "I'm a Believer," and it wasn't this. You know, I think the Smash Mouth version, in my opinion, only makes this song so cheesy that I, I just it makes me so angry because they took such a great song and they they almost comic booked it up. Hey, so, Jody. Yeah. Jody,
1: I'll let you in a little secret. Yeah. I can't stand
5: it either. Oh my god, it's horrendous the only the only good thing was that it got kids to sing a monkey song but it wasn't even a monkey song it was a it was a neil diamond song so it didn't do anything for me other than say mickey sang it first and then mickey has used that joke in every show for the past like (laughs) have you ever
0: have you ever heard neil diamond's version
5: you know, yeah, and so when I asked, I asked Carmine about their doing, you know, Vanilla Fudge doing "I'm a Believer," and he and I said to him the truth. Typically, I do not like remakes, but this remake was happened to be one, and I'm not just saying that. I'm actually being completely honest because if it sucked, I wouldn't have said anything at all. And he said that Vanilla Fudge made a career out of remaking songs. They never thought to remake a song to sound like the original song. They always thought to change it so it sounded nothing like the original song, which is why I can appreciate it because it's like a new song, but I know all the words.
2: Yeah.
1: So that um, was well the only the only introduction the my introduction to Vanilla Fudge was their remake of the Supremes you just keep me hanging on.
5: That's uh, I I'm, I think there's so many songs we actually didn't know were vanilla fudge. Um, Because that was my first introduction to them as well, and um, what a nice guy, so he was talking about him and his brother Vinny, who is a very famous also for Ozzy Osbourne, he's a famous drummer as well, Um, he's played with Def Leppard, I mean these guys are the real deal, so he's a hall of fame, he's in every hall of fame, Felix and Gene are in every hall of fame. You know, I'm getting. You know, you always get backlash when everybody can't join. Um, But you know, one day somebody will understand that the that being in a music group is a job. You know that if you know if I am you know done at a career and you know I'm probably not going back there during the holidays sending cards like I'm done. So I don't think people understand that they aren't obligated to all tour. They, they have the decision that they've made on their own they don't want a to tour similar to that of peter for whatever reason which you know we've read a, a version of why peter's not touring it doesn't matter what the real version is he's not on the tour it's not an obligation he took a job as a monkey it wasn't a you know he didn't And it's funny because the music business is so much like the devil and Peter Tork, and I never, ever, ever quote monkey episodes, but when you really do think about it, you're selling your soul, not to the devil, but to the people. So you are losing your privacy, losing your identity, losing your freedom, you know, and you, you know, people, I mean, I've read, I cannot even begin to tell you, if you read on the, on the Rascals tour page, I want, this is great, you guys will love this. I want a specific explanation as to why the other guys are not touring. So I, I, mean, I can't even make that. This is adults. This isn't even, this isn't kids and this isn't teenagers. This is people in their sixties. I want an explanation. So I just continue to write. If you give me your phone number, I'll make certain that as soon as they're ready to talk to you, they will give you a call. <laughs> I mean, when you think about how stupid that is. I mean, I had somebody waving an album on the other day. We were in um, we were in Connecticut. Somebody was waving an album in my face. I mean, I couldn't even see because the album was literally in my face, almost as close as my nose. Can you get Mickey to sign this? 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 And I said, unfortunately, you didn't get in because the Wolf Den is like a weird setup. You didn't get into the concert. So the only people they were allowing in the line were people that wanted to buy merchandise that Mickey signed. And I explained this to the person, security explained this to the person. Can you get this signed? Can you get this? And I said, did you purchase something? Because if you purchase something, I'd be more than happy to get you in the line. Well, I bought this in 1966. (laughs) So that, you know, I think that many times um, if people could see themselves you know, I had somebody that was giving me a hard time because Mickey had asked her not to touch him. And she was like, he didn't want me to touch him. And I said, well, I don't want strangers to touch me. I don't want people putting things in my face. You know, there, there's a little bit of decorum that, that I'm seeing as a fan that other fans sometimes don't see how, um, what's the word, how... You know they're they're not very um,
1: well mannered.
5: Yes, I'm looking. For, I was looking for something that they they don't understand that these are people. They're people. They have a job. Their job is to entertain. Entertaining is done on stage. When you work, you get paid. But every other time that you see a celebrity, they aren't obligated. You know they do things out of the kindness of their heart. If they want to, you don't know if they're having a bad day, but they don't owe us anything. No, so I'm, I'm, you know, with the monkeys, I take it very personally because I know them and because I love them so much. So I do take some of the comments personally, but looking at some of the rascals, you know, some of the, you know, I want an explanation kind of stuff. It's um, kind of odd, you know, you know, I, I mean... If my kid's late from school, I don't even say I. Am, you're obligated. So it's a little bit weird, you know, but, you know, it, it is what it is. So I'm, I'm just out there plugging away, and um, then hopefully in a couple weeks I'll have some more dates for you. I'll have some information for you. We are doing an East Coast road trip. Um, I did speak with Andrew Sandoval, and the Keswick Theater on, that's in Philadelphia and the last show in Red Bank, the Count Basie, are almost completely sold out for the M&M tour. So the ticket if you, if I was somebody that wanted to go to the tours, which I'm obviously, you know, very much encouraging people to go see it, on uh, the Paramount in Huntington and the um, show at the Beacon Theater, there's still some really great seats. So if you want a great seat, Um, and you know, today before it gets sold out, you might want to check out those two shows. And then, if anybody follows me on social media on the Jody Ritson page, I'm going to have information about sharing rooms and sharing rides and sharing everything, sharing stories, (laughs) sharing, sharing, sharing. That's all we do. We're a community, right?
1: Well, that's absolutely, we're all one big happy family, except for the ones that are. Second Cousins twice removed from your mama's side, like that woman who was shoving the album in your face.
5: Oh, my God. If I really, you know, you contemplate taking the album and doing something completely different with it than getting it autographed. <laughs> <laughs>
1: True. Well, I, li- well, listen, uh, di- Dig yourself out of the snow. Just remember, it'll probably be seventy next week in 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 Philadelphia. So,
5: <laughs> I know I'm still I'm still with my shorts and a tan, but I did finish my 18 loads of laundry, so that was good. Well,
1: that's good.
0: And yeah, It's not that just, much different here.
1: Yeah, it, oh. it's the second day of summer. We had we had freezing rain and snow and snow this morning, but it didn't stick. But
0: Jody, yeah. the other day, I walked out to a wonderful, full blue sky with the sun shining. And tons of snow was coming down. It was like something out of a Technicolor Disney film of the 50s. Very strange. Oh,
5: my goodness. Yeah, yeah. it's definitely, uh, it's definitely um, strange. You know, I, I probably wouldn't have an argument about global warming at this point if I was, you know, in, in Congress.
0: Remember, but, climate you know, change is a liberal myth.
5: It's made up yeah fake news
0: fake news well like is rush fake news. like rush limbaugh rush limbaugh finally got around to saying oh it's real but it's not as bad as the, as the liberals made it seem i love that listen
5: be honest with me did either of you guys have sex with trump
0: i uh, i have I I signed did, an agreement i not did, so, I, I I did agreement. not
1: have sex with that president
0: mr what's <laughs> his name i signed an agreement i
1: have sex with that president
5: add name here well, good. Keep, uh, I, keep in touch with me. Keep plugging away. You guys are doing an amazing, amazing job, and it's just exciting to uh, be able to continue to talk about the monkeys. I'm glad we still have something to talk about.
1: Absolutely. Well, listen, we will talk to you soon. Uh, hang in there, and congratulations on completing the 18 loads of laundry.
5: Well, thank you so much. Congratulations on yet another amazing episode of the Texas Prairie Chicken Home Companion podcast. That is do great. Did I do the right one? You, got you sure it right. did, dude.
0: Your all check right. is in the mail. <laughs> That's right.
1: Take care, sweetie.
5: Bye, guys.
1: Bye. Wow, uh, I'm wondering how she managed to survive all of that, especially that flower power cruise. I saw some of the pictures on there. It's like what happens on the flower power cruise stays on the cruise.
0: And I regret I couldn't go on it, but I didn't have my speedo back from the cleaners yet, so.
1: Uh, it's know. probably Peter. Peter probably has that. I, oh. is, so.
0: For those of you fans that go back to 86, you'll get that oh, reference.
1: That's right. Um, before we wrap this up, I'd like to uh, not only give our regular shout-outs to the Zilch crew. You know, the Podfather is making progress, so is Fred Velez, which is very good news to hear. Um, Melanie Mitchell, all the guys over at the Monkeys Live Almanac, because those guys, if you are looking other than, if you don't have Andrew's book that's the place you want to go for your uh, for anything that you need to anything you want to find out about monkeys. Although no when you're not one, coming here, well, of course, well, yeah, they, they but they have all the archives and everything. So true, true. Uh, but I we still have to talk about all of your toys. But that's another story for another time. I also want to send out a big thank you to Carolyn Boyce, uh, the widow of the late Tommy Boyce, <laughs> who helped set up and uh, put me in touch with Bobby uh, to get that interview. And I hope you all enjoyed it because uh, it was a lot of fun to do.
0: Thanks, of course, to Jody herself, and of course, Bobby himself.
1: Absolutely, Jody and Bobby, we love you. Love you, mean it.
0: Thank you to himself and herself.
1: That's right. So, uh, is it that time again?
0: It's time for us to hit the dusty trails.
1: Oh, wait a minute! What, what, what? Before I forget, oh, yes. Since the contest on the last episode turned out to be so boffo.
0: it's a little <laughs> less than overwhelming.
1: Yeah, no. Are you kidding? Underwhelming would be a st- underwhelming would be a gross understatement.
0: I think I hear crickets.
1: Yeah, that's right. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to make it a little easier for you guys to win this time. Not only are we going to offer up the, the rare, the rare 1987 Dolan's Jones and Torque tour book, uh, tour book. As I'm looking at it, summer tour book. That's right. Uh, we are also going to offer up a really uh, a, a, a copy that's in pretty damn good condition. The October 1967 issue of 16 Magazine that not only features the guys, it features Mark Lindsay, who just happened to be on the power, 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 Flower Power Cruise. It features Paul Revere and the Raiders. It features Felix and the Rascals. You know, so we're, we're getting in all of these, all these people that work with Jody. That's that's pretty cool. So
0: go check out her site and look at all the people she's involved with.
1: And then we've got uh, uh, Sally Field, Hermit's Hermits, the Dave Clark Five, uh, the Buckinghams. So it's and even... Uh, those four, uh, and the man with the flaming pies had your Beatles with an A, and we were. I love this. The Beatles ring your ding. I don't want to go there because uh, I don't want I don't want Mr. Cheatham to have to come back with that damn shot collar.
0: Big shout out to Mr. Richard Starkey for something that just occurred in his world.
1: Yes. Uh, uh, congratulations, Sir Richard of Starkey. He now has the classic sir title to go with the classic rings and the classic nose. Wrong lads.
0: There we go. And, you know, like you said, this, uh, this 50-year-old 16 magazine is in great condition. I refrained from tearing out all the pinups of Davy and putting them on my wall. Thank God. Some may be lightly kissed and fondled, but hey. Ew! Ow! Why, my, why are you putting the magazine down now? Ew!
1: All right, so, to make it easier this time, for the, uh, just so because I feel I need to give the answer... Uh, you've heard the man three times a day. The legendary L.A. DJ that I was speaking of, the question was the real Don Steele. And the song was The Girl I Knew Somewhere. Because if you look back to the interview that we did where we, I talked about Don Steele, um, there was a talking about Nez listening to the radio where if Girl I Knew Somewhere had not been played, Mike would have gone. There would be no monkeys. So
0: What Alan's referring to is our question to win. The previously mentioned loot and the question was what famous LA DJ
1: And what song did he break that saved the monkeys.
0: Right, so there you go.
1: Alright, so this is gonna be very easy. But now. Now and, and now for something completely different. An easy question, all right. So here's what you gotta do.
0: If train A leaves the station at four fifty five. No.
1: You're gonna get the answer to that in a question one of these days, but it's not gonna be from me because I was told there would be no math. So Right. Alright, so all we ask that you do is if you want to change
0: Are we using the metric system or, or never mind. <laughs> Have another, have another sheet of paper?
1: Al, Al, Al. Yes. School's out forever. Oh. All right. So. Magic words. All you need to do is to go to the Facebook group page. And we want you to leave a comment. Once Al gets the next episode put up, we want you to leave a comment, positive or negative. What you like about it, what you don't like about it. Everyone that comments will go into the drawing. And for episode 17, we will pull out the winner we will see both of these. Uh, we will put up a picture in a little while. Uh, Al took a picture of me holding these last week uh, when we did the Bobby Hart interview. Or no, it was when we did the other interview that's coming up that we have yet to tease for you.
0: Yes. Which is a big one, too, but we dare not mention it here.
1: That's right. Not yet. Well, it's coming up. So
0: so but, uh, senses shattering. That's so right. pulse-pounding. Wait, I'm, now I'm channeling Stan Lee. Uh,
1: face front. By the hoary hosts of Hogoth, I think I'll order a pizza.
0: Excelsior!
1: All right, so... All you got to do is once episode 16 is posted, you just need to leave a comment about what you like or what you didn't like about it and what you'd like to see. Just let us know how we're doing because we don't get a lot of feedback. We get likes, but we don't get a lot of feedback on it. So, you know, I'm guessing we're doing something right. But if you want a chance to win those two items, that's all you got to do. Leave a comment. And everybody that leaves a comment will go into the drawing and we will draw a name at the beginning of episode 17.
0: Hopefully, it's like the old thing where you buy a new car. You're not going to complain unless, of course, something went wrong. You're not going to comment yeah. unless you had a bad experience. True. You assume you're going to have a good experience, and that's the norm. Mm-hmm. So hopefully, it's that's some right. of that. But if you have harsh things to say about me, I can take it. So that's bring right. it on.
1: So, again, so, I, I, I promise. I promise. So Remember,
0: we promised when we started the podcast, no tears. Just one episode where one of us doesn't cry is all I'm asking.
1: That's right. So... Should I tease them? Just to, let, Let's give them just a, a preview of coming attractions. Okay. So, right. We're still working on, we still have our Jim Johnson interview from the Hear No Evil um, tribute CD that we have yet. Oh, that reminds me. Yes. For those of you that actually like Hear No Evil, uh, Jim was kind enough to send me about eight or ten stickers that he found in his archives. Ooh. So, if you like the Hear No Evil CD... And you'd like to get one of the stickers? Just drop us a line. We'll put it in an envelope, put it in an envelope, and mail it to you. It's really cool.
0: Talk about rarities. That's right. I um, don't even have one.
1: Well, you will when I next time I'll, I'll bring bring them for you. So you do that for me? Yes, I would. No, no, I'm tearing up. You're my, you're my, you're my podcast pal of mine.
0: Pass, the, pass the tissues, please. That's right.
1: Uh, one of the upper other uh, episodes that we're working on is the connection, which is something near and dear to your heart, is the connection between the monkeys and the comics industry.
0: Comic books. That's
1: right. Funny, yeah they may are funny books like you got hanging on the wall behind
0: you there when I was when I was nine my, my grandmother would give me uh, 50 cents to go get a big big hunk of funny books silly books that's right Captain and, marvel every one of them
1: that's right and we just completed another interview last week with a man who is at the forefront of the first three albums one of the live albums. And is, uh, I I believe that the the best, we could could tease it, should you give your famous Nez line?
0: I better not. That gives too much away, I think. But this is a big one.
1: That's right. It's one of the men who, and especially who is at the forefront of headquarters. Yes, indeed. Watch the VU!
0: There you go. That's all we shall say. That's right.
1: But that'll be coming up probably episode 18 or so. It'll be coming up soon.
0: So once again, thanks to all our listeners. Thanks to Ken Mills, the podfather, like you mentioned.
1: Fred Velez, glad you're feeling better, Fred. Thanks to Melanie Mitchell, all the guys over at the Zilch Podcast, um, our buddies over at the uh, Monkeys Live Almanac, because I sometimes even I need help, and they help me out immensely with with uh, tidbits of information. They're the best.
0: The Monkeys Facebook page, Monkeys Headquarters. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: Jody, with both of hers, uh, all, and we fail to forget. Remember. Jody is now working not not only with Mike and Mickey, but with Felix Cavaliere of the Rascals, Mark Farner of Grand Funk Railroad, um, Florence LaRue of the Fifth Dimension, and Barry Williams. So I'm I'm amazed at how she manages to still squeeze us in. You know, I like, don't
0: know why she she bends low to grace her, us with with her um, presence, her presence and her um, her uh, words of wisdom.
1: But I know she's exci- I know she's really excited about the the karaoke coming up. So I, I wish you and I could be there Because like I said I've already I've already stated that I would want to sing um, Since you get two songs with him I wanted to sing uh, The Unchained My Heart Joe Cocker version And I also wanted to I also wanted to do Caramia by uh, Jandy Americans Just to show that I still have Lung power at age 50 8
0: Very good, very good Are, so,
1: you, ready, are, are you ready for uh, Is it time for the legalese? Yes, yeah,
0: time for the legalese
1: I defer to you this time
0: this podcast is done by fans for fans. It's a labor of love. We are not affiliated with Rhino Records, the estate of Davy Jones, Mickey, Mickey Dolenz,
1: Michael Nesmith, Video Ranch 3D, Peter Tork, um, Bobby, Jones, uh, Bobby Hart and Tommy Boyce. You know, it, it, if it has any connection to it, it's not us.
0: Any resemblance between people living or dead is purely coincidental.
1: Coincident, that's right. <laughs> All material used on this show is uh, the copyrights referred to the current owners. The respective owners. That's right. And that's all, folks.
0: So until next time, this is Al Bigley and
1: Alan Williams
0: saying, Save, Save the, the Texas, Texas Prairie Chicken! chicken.